0: Amen. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. It's good to see you this morning, and what a pleasure it is for us to gather together in the name that is above all names, the name of Jesus, and to give praise and glory to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Can you say amen? Amen. Delighted to have you worshiping with us today. As you know, we've been studying the book of Philippians now, I guess, uh, for about four weeks. And today we're going to continue our series, Discovering Joy, Paul's epistle to the Philippians, and I'm going to invite you to stand with me if you would. Our text for this morning's message is taken from Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, and I invite you to read along with me. Okay, let's read together. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. In order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Shall we pray together? Heavenly Father, we do thank you this morning once again for the privilege of being able to gather in your name. What a wonderful thing it is to be inspired by your word, to be encouraged by brothers and sisters in the faith, and to just take a Sabbath from life itself, to just enjoy sitting at your feet. Lord, today we pray that as we open your your word and we open our hearts to your word, that you will cause it to find a home in our lives and that you will help us to understand it and to understand its implications for our daily living. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You may be seated. When Robert Louis Stevenson was a boy... He said to his mother, Mama, you can't be good without praying. How do you know, his mother asked, because I've tried, he said. (laughs) Reminds me of a boy that was sent to his room for misbehaving, and a short time later, he came out and he said to his mother, I've been thinking about what I did, and I said a prayer. That's good, she said. If you ask God to make you good, he will help you. Oh, I didn't ask him to help me be good, replied the boy. I asked him to help you put up with me. (laughs) From our earliest days, prayer has been a part of man's history. In the Garden of Eden, the Bible tells us that God came and communed with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Of course, they sinned and were ejected from the garden. Adam and Eve went on to have several children, Cain and Abel, of course. They also had a son named Seth, and Seth had a son named Enosh. And at that time, the Bible says, men began to call on the name of the Lord. And so from his earliest times, man has known prayer from the earliest days of history. After Jesus ascended, he sat at the right hand of the Father in session where the Bible tells us he ever lives to make intercession for us, which means when we pray, we are imitating what Jesus is doing even now, interceding on our behalf. One of the most Christ-like things you can do is pray for others. As a godly man, Paul was a man of prayer, and Paul regularly prayed For the Philippians. He said a little earlier, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, offering prayer with joy for you all. So, prayers of thanksgiving that Paul offered were filled with joy, they were offered in confidence, and they recounted God's work among the Philippians. As he continues, Paul shares the content of his prayers a little bit more specifically. Not only was he offering prayers of thanksgiving, he was offering prayers of petition. Prayers of thanksgiving as well as prayers of petition. And so he intercedes and he petitions God on behalf of the Philippians. So this morning we're going to take a little time to look at Paul's prayers of petition that he makes on behalf of this congregation that he so loved. By way of introduction, I want us to note that Paul's emphasis was on spiritual growth. Paul was concerned for spiritual growth. Turn and tell your neighbor Paul was concerned for spiritual growth. That may seem obvious, but I want you to note Paul did not pray for their financial prosperity. He didn't even pray in this case for their uh, physical healing. Didn't pray that they would have political success in the Roman system. And I'm sure that all of those things were important to Paul, and he would have wished them well on all those accounts. But in this particular time, he is raising his focus to a much loftier goal. He was praying for their spiritual health, for their spiritual development, for their spiritual growth. He's already observed that God is at work in them. He who began a good work in you will perfect it, he says. So he's praying with joy and praying with great confidence. His prayer, broadly speaking, is that God would continue that good work that he had already begun in them, that work of growing their faith, that work of perfecting their faith. And so as we kind of zoom in on this text this morning. I want to focus on Paul's two petitions. The first was a petition for an ever-growing love, that their love might abound. And so again, in verses 9 and 10, he says, "...and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ." And so here we find three aspects of an ever-growing love. He's talking about its environment, its manner, its outcome. What type of environment does it need? What's the manner of its growth? And what is the result of possessing such love? These are important questions. And they're important questions that we want to address. But first we've got to start out by defining what does Paul mean by love? What does he mean when he says, I would that your love would abound more and more. Now, when we hear the word love, we probably think of affection. We think of uh, devotion to someone. We think of, you know, favorable feelings and favorable sentiment towards another. Pop culture describes love in terms of a possessive yearning for the beloved. And so you hear songs like, I can't live if if living is without you. Uh, How am I supposed to live? without you, right? It's this possessing of the beloved. What doesn't help us at all is that in English, the word love is thrown around all the time to describe all sorts of things. We went to the auto show yesterday and I saw a lot of cars that I could look at and say, I love that car, but I certainly don't love that car like I love my wife, right? People say, what do you want to do for dinner? I don't know, but you know, I really love Italian. (laughs) And anyone who doesn't love Italian hasn't had good Italian. (laughs) But we use love so carelessly to describe such a variety of emotions. The scarcity of our language weakens our ability to define love. Fortunately, the Greeks didn't have that problem. They used four different words to define love. The first was phileo, and uh, we hear the word Philadelphia in that, which shouldn't surprise us because it means brotherly love. And then there was eros, E-R-O-S, from the word uh, word that we derive the word erotic from. And so eros is a possessive love and uh, most often refers to sexual intimacy. There is stergo, to cherish affectionately, like family love. And then there is agape, the kind of love that God has for us, a deep appreciation and a high regard for the beloved. And it's given without regard to merit. Agape simply seeks to express itself. Think about the the, the prodigal son's father and the kind of love that he had for the prodigal son, although the prodigal son did not deserve it. He was unworthy of the father's love. And yet we see the father standing at the end of the driveway, craning his neck, looking for the prodigal son. A love that desired to express itself without regard for the merit of the beloved. It simply wanted to love. And in our text, this is the kind of love Paul is talking about. He uses the term agape. He says, And this I pray, That your agape may abound still more and more. So Paul is calling for a type of love that seeks to express itself, that is given without regard to merit, and that simply demonstrates a high regard for the beloved. And it is growing. It's growing. He prays that their agape may abound still more and more. I'm no farmer, but I did grow up in the country and we had a little parcel of land and a pretty sizable family garden. And every year, our family would go out there and we would spend time, you know, breaking up the soil and fertilizing it, turning it over. We would plant the vegetable seeds, plant the fruit, uh, make sure that there was plenty of water. And then throughout that season, we would go out and we would weed. And uh, my mother, I think it was very therapeutic for her. I probably had a little bit to do with her needing therapy. <laughs> for us kids, it was just something that you had to do. And so we would weed the garden, and we would make sure that you know we sprayed for pests and all those kinds of things. And as a result, at harvest time, there was always a greater harvest than what we could use as a family. And so mom would make jams and jellies, and she would can some of it, and she would put some of it in the freezer. I mean, it was wonderful. You'd come in in the middle of January... Uh, to sweet corn that she had frozen earlier, you know, it was just, and there was always more than we could use. So she'd give some to the neighbors and, you know, pack it off with us to school to give away to our teachers. Well, likewise, in order for agape love to grow, it must have the right conditions. There must be an environment that nourishes it. So what does that kind of an environment look like? What are its primary traits? Well, again, look back back at uh, verse 9. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. So that kind of an environment where agape will abound more and more is characterized by knowledge and discernment. Interesting. Interesting. We probably wouldn't uh, describe love with those terms, would we? I mean, if a young boy, a young man is trying to really win the heart of a young lady, he's probably not going to say to her, I love you with a a love that is just full of knowledge and discernment. (laughs) She'd look at him like, what are you talking about? I mean, we tend to define and to describe love with words like affection and, and warmth. And I just... I can't live if living is without you, those kinds of things, right? But knowledge and discernment, what is Paul talking about? Well, the connection between love on the one hand and knowledge and discernment on the other is something that we really need to understand. Because to understand the relationship is to consider a common error in the Christian world. It's an error that concerns a false dichotomy Between love and truth. And so you have the first extreme, people who emphasize love at the expense of truth. They say things like, well, we don't need doctrine, just love. I mean, after all, Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for each other, not by your doctrine. It's the first extreme. The second extreme is when people emphasize doctrine at the expense of love careful with their dogmas and their systematic theologies, but they lose all sense of unity and there's little, if any, affection. So who's right and who's wrong? Those who emphasize love or those who emphasize truth? Well, actually, both are right and both are wrong. Because love or truth, love or truth, is a false dichotomy. It is an unscriptural separation. In biblical Christianity, there is a thorough blending of truth and love, a thorough working through of truth and love. We see this in the ministry of Jesus. Remember with his high priestly prayer in John 17. He prayed for the unity of his followers, and he prayed that his followers would be sanctified in the truth. Thy Word is truth. We also see the blending of truth and love in the person of Jesus, not only in his ministry, but in who he was. Think about it. Jesus is God the Son, and we know from the scripture that God is love. Therefore, as the Son, Jesus is love. But he also said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so we see that Jesus is love and Jesus is truth. So there's, there's no surprise then when the Bible tells us the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That, that grace and truth, love and truth, these are blended fully in the ministry of Jesus and even in the person of Jesus. This thorough blending of love and truth is what Paul describes, it's what Jesus demonstrated, and it's what Paul prays that the Philippians will experience in abundance, that it will come in more and more heavy doses. One day the Bible tells us Jesus, while he was teaching in the temple, was confronted by the scribes and Pharisees, and they brought this woman who was caught in adultery and they threw her down at Jesus' feet. They said, this woman was caught in adultery, caught in the very act. Now Moses says that we should stone one like this. What do you say? And Jesus, taking his time, answered them, Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Remarkable wisdom. And the Bible tells us that beginning with the oldest right down to the youngest of her accusers, they simply dropped their stones on the ground and walked away. Finally, when the accusers were gone, Jesus turns to the woman and says, where are your accusers? Is there no one that condemns you? And she says, no, Lord. And then he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, I want you to notice that in his response, Jesus did not compromise the truth. He didn't say, well, you know, don't worry about it. Go and live your own life. We've all got to be true ourselves after all. He didn't say anything like that, did he? He forgave her an acknowledgement of her sin. He forgave her. Neither do I condemn you. And then he instructed her, go and sin no more or as one translator puts it, go and leave your life of sin. It was a fresh start. She had the opportunity now to live in a different way because she had been confronted with truth and love. She had been forgiven and she had been given a fresh life. It's beautiful, this blending of truth and love together and how important it is. Think about if you were to go to the doctor, maybe you've had a a severe abdominal issue, a lot of pain and so the doctor begins to run all kinds of tests, and the doctor discovers you have cancer. The doctor doesn't want to tell you you have cancer. I mean, who would, right? That's difficult news. It's going to upset you. But a good doctor will tell you nonetheless you have cancer. Even though he knows you don't want to hear that, he cares for you and therefore wants to tell you this is the problem so that perhaps we can come up with some sort of a solution, a strategy. It may even save your life. And that's really the concept behind what Paul is discussing and describing here. Again, in verses 9 and 10, he says, "...and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ." Notice the outcome of this kind of love. A rich understanding of God's Word, a proper understanding of the world. A rich understanding of God's Word, a proper understanding of the world. For Paul, truth not only characterized love, it informed his prayer life. His prayers reflected Christian doctrine. His prayers were rich. In scriptural theology, how many of you would agree with me that sometimes when you pray for someone, you don't know what to pray? happens all the time. They'll bring a need that is so heavy, your head's swimming, and you're like, I don't even know where to begin. And so oftentimes we end up praying pretty surface-level prayers, pretty superficial prayers. You know, God bless the missionaries. God, be with brother so-and-so. God, be with sister so-and-so. You know? Very superficial, very surface-level prayers. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying that way. God hears all of our prayers. And I'm sure that you could make an argument that even our deepest, most well-thought-out prayers still need the help of His Spirit. Amen? And yet I wonder how much more effective our praying would be if we first turn to the Word of God and said, what does God say about this? How can I pray in accordance with the will of God, in accordance with the Word of God? Jesus felt that that kind of praying was incredibly important. In John chapter 14, he said, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now what this does not mean is that you can attach in Jesus' name to whatever you pray and think that that is somehow a magic talisman, and now you will get what you asked for. Like, prayer is really supposed to be like the genie's lamp, you know? I can pray whatever I want, and as long as I say, in Jesus' name, I'll get it. That is not at all what Jesus is talking about. When he says, whatever you ask in my name... The thought is, when you pray according to the will of God, then Jesus can take out his holy pen and write his name to it. That's what he's saying. When you are praying in the name of Jesus, you are praying according to the will of God. And we know from the Bible that whenever we pray according to the will of God, what happens? Our prayers are answered according to the will of God. So when you pray according to the Word of God, you are praying the will of God. And that's what it means to ask in the name of Jesus. So what was the will of God for the Philippians? What was the will of God for us? That our love would abound more and more in real knowledge and discernment, a rich blending of grace and truth, of love and knowledge and discernment. Paul's prayer then is that, the, that Christian love would abound more and more and that it would do so in knowledge and discernment. Clearly, this is not superficial sentimentalism. Rather, it is a love that is genuinely concerned for people and deeply committed to the Word. Remember, Paul's passion is spiritual growth. He longs for the character of Christ to be fully formed in the Philippians. In an environment of Christian love, that will happen. Spiritual growth will take place. There are aspects of spiritual growth that only take place in the context of Christian love. For as one man sharpens another, even as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So Paul's first petition here is for an ever-growing love. His second petition, a fully formed character. Say that with me. A fully formed character. And so again in verse 9, he says, And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. I would suggest that there are two traits of mature believers that we see as we go below the surface of this passage. The first trait, they discern truth. And we've already seen, as Paul prays, that the Philippians' love would abound in real knowledge and discernment, a solid understanding of the Scripture. And it's a solid understanding of truth, listen, with the capacity to grasp the real nature of things considered. So it's a knowledge of the truth with the capacity to grasp the real nature of that which you are considering. We've probably all heard that phrase, practice makes perfect. Maybe you've even used it before. You know, you've got a child who's uh, preparing for an exam, or maybe they're getting ready for a football game, or maybe they're preparing for a piano recital, and you find yourself saying, well, practice makes perfect. And it's a motto that we just kind of throw around, but it's so true and so important. And it's also the concept behind this statement, real knowledge and discernment. Practice makes perfect. What do you mean? Next month we have the Winter Olympics. How many of you like watching the Winter Olympics? I don't care much for the Summer Olympics, a few of the sports I like, but the Winter Olympics, maybe because I was brought up in in Michigan, you know, and my brain is like frostbitten. I'm not sure, but... I love watching, you know, the downhill uh, slalom. I like watching the high jump, the bobsled, all that stuff. It just really lights me up. I love watching the Winter Olympics. And this year, the Winter Olympics are in South Korea. And so we were talking about this at men's breakfast. The whole world is going to be watching South Korea to see who brings home the gold, right? But I want you to realize that Olympic athletes don't just get up out of bed one morning and say, well, you know, I don't really have anything to do today. Uh, I think I'll go ride the bobsled. That sounds like fun. (laughs) I mean, that's not how you get to the Olympics, right? Right. You get to the Olympics after years and years of practice and a disciplined regimen, and you're up at the crack of dawn, and you're eating the right things, and you're doing the right things, and your brain is sharp, and your body's conditioned, and it responds like a well-oiled machine. It doesn't just happen overnight. This is the concept that Paul's talking about. It's a concept that is not unfamiliar to other passages of Scripture. The writer of Hebrews says, but solid food is for the mature, watch this, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Practice makes perfect. So two traits of mature believers we see here, they discern truth and then secondly, they approve the excellent. And that has to do with living righteously. They approve the excellent. And when Paul looks at this, the first aspect is the positive aspect. They are living righteously, and so he deals with this from a positive aspect. He says, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. And approving the excellent means to regard something worthwhile, means to regard something as appropriate. Now think about how that applies in our lives, how we spend our time. How we invest our money, how we use our talents. We have to be looking at those things and, and making judgments. Mature Christians give careful attention to the things that are appropriate and valuable and worthwhile, the positive side. Then Paul touches on the negative side, the negative side of living righteously. In other words, saying yes to some things is saying no to other things, Right? It's the other side of the coin. And this understanding is really uh, brought out in the second part of verse 10, that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. So approving excellent things involves making judgments. Is something excellent? If yes, if it's valuable, if it's approved of, then it's something that you can get behind. It's something that you can can do or something that you can approve of. But if no, then you are to disapprove of it. In approving the excellent, we are disapproving the dishonorable. Practicing righteousness, living sincerely with pure motives, not offending the Spirit of God nor violating the Word of God. So how do you determine what is excellent? How do you discern that which is to be disapproved of. Well, we've already seen the importance of real knowledge and discernment, right? Knowing and believing and obeying the Word of God. But let's face it, there are some things in life that aren't sinful, but yet may be unworthy. Unworthy of our time, unworthy of our talent, unworthy of our treasure, or at least need to be kept in balance to where they're not consuming us. I won't ask for a show of hands, but uh, I know Facebook can be a lot of fun, and Facebook can be a huge waster of time, (laughs) right? Is it a sin? Of course not. Does it need to be kept in balance? Of course it does, right? Just like watching football or golfing or other things that we would look at and say, well, there's nothing inherently sinful about that behavior, but how much do I give myself to it, right? Right? I mean, the older that I get, the more I realize how valuable study of the Word of God is. I remember listening to an interview that was being given by a pastor who had a long 40- or 50-year career behind the pulpit and was well-known, well um, remarkable minister. Many of you would probably recognize his name if I were to share it. And they were asking him what he enjoyed about ministry, and he told them, and what he you know, didn't enjoy about ministry, and he told them. And then they said, if you had to do it all over again, what would you do differently? And do you know that he said he would have spent more time in study and in prayer than he had, even though he was a person known for study and prayer. And I think it was just because over the years he had, begun, he had came to a place where he valued the word of God and he valued times of communion with the Lord more than he ever had before that agape, this time toward the Lord, growing more and more and abounding. So how do we judge then those things that aren't sinful on the surface and recognize what it is that we approve as being excellent? Paul gives us the answer in verse 11. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, here it is, to the glory and praise of God to the glory and praise of God. The fruit of righteousness comes through Jesus Christ, and it begins at conversion. We admit that we're sinners, we repent of our sinful lifestyle, we for, we receive forgiveness of sin from the Lord. The Bible tells us that we are indwelt then by the spirit of God, and the righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed unto us. Isn't that wonderful? It's amazing. That righteousness, though, is developed in a practical sense in our sanctification. Sanctification, it's a fancy-sounding theological term which means to be set apart from sin and unto God, sanctification. But I want you to remember that sanctification is both positional and practical. That you are positionally sanctified when you come to Christ, when you are converted. You are sanctified. That as far as God is concerned, you are one of His. Set apart from the world, set apart from sin, and unto Him. The Bible refers to this as justification. It's like you never sinned. But the practical sanctification takes place day by day. It's that process of growing in Christ's likeness Practi- Practical sanctification is what this is referring to here, living to the praise and glory of God. And that is something that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians. He said, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God of God. That's how you judge those things that are excellent. Paul's prayer for the Philippians then is that they would experience an ever-growing love and that they would possess a fully formed character. Salvation is not just about escaping damnation. It's not just about not worrying about being condemned. One of the greatest problems that we make in in Western culture is that we have completely uh, attached our salvation and the notion of our salvation to having my sins forgiven, spending eternity in heaven. And we've missed it by a mile. We've missed it by a mile. Yes, salvation is about being forgiven of sin. Absolutely. Praise God. My sins are forgiven. It's wonderful, but have you noticed that in Western culture, especially in America, we are ruggedly individualistic, and so we tend to see everything in terms of our own perspective and how that really tinges our view of salvation to see it simply in terms of I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, I don't have to worry about anything else because I'm saved, and I'm going to heaven. But friends, when Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, yes, he did provide the sacrifice for our sins that we would be forgiven. But it wasn't simply so we could go to live with him in heaven for eternity, because here's a newsflash. We're not going to live with Jesus in heaven for eternity. We're not. Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will doubtless come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. But the word that is translated mansions is actually a Greek word that means wayside inn. Why? Why a wayside inn? To put it in the modern vernacular, why a holiday inn? Because we're not going to be with Him in heaven forever. There is a resurrection coming when the Son of God will return and will raise us bodily from the dead. And we will be glorified. And we will be placed within the new heaven and the new earth where we will dwell with God and He will dwell with us for time unending. Wow! Peter tells us that if we are in Christ, having been forgiven of sin, having been adopted into his family, that we are royal priests. Hallelujah. You know what that means? That means that when we are saved, we receive eternal life, and the Father has work for us to do that begins right now. Right now. We live in a world that discourages us. We live in a world that is so out of control and so confused that when we read passages like this that talk about love that is characterized with real knowledge and all discernment, we say, Yes, that's the kind of love we need so that we can approve the excellent. And in so doing, we can show that which is dishonorable as well. But that's not where it all ends. It is so that we can be these faithful royal priests to God. Mankind's original vocation was to reflect the image of God, the imago Dei. We were created, male and female, in His image. And so as mirrors set on a 45-degree angle, we as the royal priests of God are to reflect To this world, the glory of the Lord. To sing and to shout and to speak of his greatness. And in so doing, we are to sum up the, the praise of creation and give it to God. For man is the only one that can give articulate expression to who God is. To declare his praises. And as his priests to then give to this world through our stewardship what God intends this world to have as his royal priests. And so that means, I mean, go back and and reread the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're not just to say, well, I'll be praying for you. I know you're hungry and your stomach's growling, but I'll be praying for you. James says that kind of So called religion is worthless. We are to clothe the naked. We are to feed the hungry. And we are to do so in the name of Jesus, realizing to separate this so called social gospel from the gospel proper is a late time uh, manifestation of Western philosophy. The early church knew nothing of that dichotomy. Go back to the medieval Europe, and you'll find the European villages filled with cathedrals. And did you know that the cathedral was the highest point in the city? And do you know why the cathedral was the highest point in the city? Part of the reason was because they wanted to reflect that the most important work being done on the planet is the work of God's kingdom. And part of the reason was so that everyone, no matter where they lived, could see where they went to for help. Because it was the church that provided health care. It was the church that provided shelters for the homeless. It was the church that provided food for the hungry. It was the church that provided the bread of life, Jesus Christ, in the gospel. It was a one-stop shop. I would cheapen it and say it was like a Walmart for everything you needed, beginning with the spiritual and going to the physical, but I don't want to cheapen it. (laughs) God loves the world. He loves men and women created in his image, and he loves them body, soul, and spirit. And so when Jesus was giving his instruction to his followers on how they should live, He didn't use a rabbi as a good example. He didn't use a Pharisee or a scribe as a good example. He didn't even use a Levite as a good example. He used all three as a bad example. And instead, he used a good Samaritan. (laughs) And he said, go and do likewise. God saves us in salvation, and we will be eternally grateful. And we're so thrilled with that now. And yet it's not until we're standing in his presence that we will fully realize just what that means. Yes, he saves us. The remission of our sin through his sacrifice. But what are we saved to? We know what we're saved from. What are we saved to? We are saved to be his royal priests. Summing up the praises of God to give to our Lord. Articulating the praise and worship of the creation, and then reflecting back to this world, what God is really like. Do you see why righteous living is so important? So very important, because it's only as we are living righteously that we can approve those things that are excellent and be without blame, faultless on that day when he returns to judge the living and the dead. So what are the implications for us today? God's desire is that we would continue to grow and develop spiritually. Paul talked about this in Ephesians 4. He said, We should no longer be children, but speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth, listen, truth in what? Love. There is that thorough blending once again. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. This was Paul's desire for the Philippians. It was his desire for the Ephesians, his desire for the Corinthians. This is God's desire for every Christian. And two of the spiritual disciplines that promote such growth are prayer and Bible study. If we were to grow spiritually mature, we must be people of prayer. I have to say it again. If we would would grow to full spiritual maturity... We must be people of prayer. There are no shortcuts, right? There's no can uh, of spiritual protein powder. There there are no shortcuts. We've got to be people of prayer. C.S. Lewis said, The moment you wake up each morning, all of your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists in shoving it all back, in listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other, larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in. The first thing that I've learned to do in my adult life has been to reach for the Bible. First thing I do in the morning, well, I say first thing, I usually have prayer before I even get out of bed. And then I reach for the Word. Why? Because I know Greg needs to recalibrate. Greg needs to recalibrate. He needs the Word of God. He needs prayer. He needs his vision and his focus set on those things that are above. John Bunyan said, He who runs from God in the morning will scarcely find him the rest of the day. If we would grow spiritually mature, we must be people of prayer. And then also, we must be people of the Word. We live in a biblically illiterate society. It's absolutely dreadful. In a recent survey, it was found that half of Americans do not read the Bible. Half of Americans. The survey also found that the majority of Christians only read the Bible once or twice a week. Only 18% of Christians read the Bible every day. I hope that you're among the 18%. (laughs) So let me ask you, how healthy would you be if you only ate one meal a week? Or perhaps two. We'd be visiting you in the hospital before long. We need the Word of God. It is our manna. It is our bread. It's the nourishment to our souls. As people of the Word, we will become more and more capable of practicing spiritual discernment of understanding and applying scriptural truth to our life. And what will the result be? A rich and spiritual unity abounding more and more in love among us. Amen. Being people of prayer, being people of the word, yielding to that and allowing God to set our time and our talent and our treasure priorities and values and what is truly excellent. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your word, which can at once rebuke us and encourage and comfort us at the selfsame time. We thank you today for encouraging us and exhorting us to be people that are given to your word, people that are given to love and understanding what this kind of agape love looks like that there will be a rich blending of truth with real knowledge and all discernment and then Lord I pray that you would help us to apply it in our own lives and in the life of our church family that people will know they are loved they're loved then Father I pray that you will help us to apply it in practical ways to reach out to this community in which you planted us May 1st Baptist develop an ever-increasing reputation, that that is a church that loves people. That's a church that cares for this community. That's a church that does practical things to meet the needs of people. And in so doing, Lord, I pray that you will give us rich opportunities to share the gospel and to let people know we care because of one who has already cared for us, and he cares for you as well. And now, Father, as we give back to you a portion of that which you blessed us with, we ask that you would take these offerings and give us wisdom to know how best to invest them for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you give to the work of the Lord.